Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Brian Mueller, president of Grand Canyon University. Prior to that, Brian spent 22 years at the Apollo Group, the parent company of the University of Phoenix, where he held executive positions at the University of Phoenix, including CEO, chief operating officer, and senior vice president. This experience helped him transform Grand Canyon University from a financially troubled university into a $5 billion institution that has become a driving force in higher education today. Now, Brian started out his career spending seven years as a high school teacher and basketball coach and spent seven more years as a college professor and basketball coach. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I want to start out by just understanding how are you doing and how's your family doing these days? Thanks for asking that. We are, we are doing great. We have a lot to be thankful for, not only the family, but the university. You know, COVID has put a lot of strain on a lot of people, a lot of organizations, but we, to this point, have moved through it very successfully and, and are very grateful for that. So thank you for asking. Now, one part of your background that is immediately striking to me is that you were a basketball coach for, for at the high school level, the college level. You taught in high school, taught in college. I'm so curious about kind of what, what spurred you into that direction in your early years. Uh, you know, I knew, I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to teach and coach in high school. I had a lot of good coaches, a lot of good teachers that helped me along the way. And I knew early on that I wanted to, to teach and coach. And so I went to a college where I could learn to do that, where I could play baseball and basketball and, and got out and had the good fortune then of my first seven years of working for some, some great people and then built a pretty good high school basketball program. We actually lost in the state finals in, in uh, Denver, Colorado after a 25 win season. And then I went to a, into a small college role as a teacher and basketball coach and really, really enjoyed that as well. We built a pretty good small college basketball program, went from eight wins to 12 to, to, to 21 and just missed going to the national tournament at, at the NEI level. But the bottom line is I really liked being around high school kids. I really liked being around college kids. I found that very invigorating. It was a very satisfying job for me. But then as uh, my family grew and I was in a PhD program at Arizona State teaching philosophy as part of a humanities class, making $5,000 a semester, living in a 1,200 square foot house with my brother-in-law, me, him, my wife, three kids, and then my wife informed me we had a fourth one on the way. I had to make a change, at least temporarily. And I got hired in at the University of Phoenix as they were just beginning to make payroll and organizing what they were doing in a pretty impactful way. Never intended to stay there, but actually built a 22-year career there where I learned some things that you just couldn't learn in, a, in an educational program, a PhD program, which really helped us as we started out at Grand Canyon. That's remarkable. I mean, I, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes at that point of transition. What was the initial kind of maybe excitement around Grand Canyon University when you're first kind of embarking on that journey? And, and how has that journey gone? After 22 years at the Apollo Group, which were great, great years, you know, we were the first to go out and say, we're pretty confident that, that, that people can learn very, very well online. And especially working professionals who are juggling career, family responsibilities. And nobody else was believing that that could be done in the early 90s, in the mid 90s. And we were very confident we could do that. And so we really had the world to ourselves for about a, a decade. We actually went to the public markets to get infusion of, of dollars, and we built millions and millions of dollars worth of technology. We were hiring at one point 400 people a quarter, and we grew from a couple thousand students to 340,000 students, and it was a very, very transitional time in higher ed. 
And of course, now what you hear today is, is everybody is moving in that direction to some extent. And so we really were out in front from that standpoint. In traditional higher ed, most people are aware of this a little bit, but not the specifics. The cost of living has gone up in this country 100% since the early 90s. The cost of higher ed has gone up 350%. Students are taking out too much debt. The students are taking too long to complete programs. Programs aren't designed closely enough to where the real good jobs are in, in our world. And so even recent college graduates are underemployed. We were wondering whether we had learned some things at Phoenix around using the public markets to get access to capital, large amounts of capital, to really kickstart a new financial model. And then if we could create a hybrid campus that would leverage a common infrastructure, if we could flip the economics of higher ed and make it affordable to all socioeconomic classes of Americans, namely, for us, it was Christian private university education. That had never been done before. And that's what we came to Grand Canyon to do. Grand Canyon was was a small university that was struggling, you know, right here in Phoenix, Arizona. But we thought we had the platform to do something completely different that would really revolutionize the economics of, of higher education and make it affordable to all socioeconomic classes of Americans. There was a lot of risk in what we did, but we had confidence that we had learned some things that may work. And, and very honestly, it worked out a lot better than we thought. Do you think, as you look out now, I mean, as you alluded to, there's so many groups that are kind of, in a way, trying to do what you did a decade, you said a decade ago, I would argue maybe two decades ago, in terms of like, even thinking about this, are there certain trends that you're seeing now that others should be aware of, especially in the health sciences or anything you're noticing that, that just isn't in the mainstream consciousness? No, I think you're, uh, you're right. COVID has had some devastating impacts on all of our lives and all of our organizations. But some of the good that's going to come out of that is that is that people have been forced to think about how they're doing things. And I don't think anything will change as much as education will change over the next 10 to 20 years. It used to be from a higher ed standpoint that small and elite was getting a lot of credit and rankings, et cetera. And, and in the future, it's going to be large and very flexible. What people realize is that if they're going to survive in the future, whether it's in the K-12 world or the higher ed world, they're going to have to have multiple delivery models, given what people's goals are, what their lifestyles are. And if you're going to survive, and there'll be a lot of universities that won't survive going forward, but if you're going to survive, you're going to do it by understanding the consumer in new and different ways and being able to reach those consumers in very flexible ways. And that is true in the natural sciences as well as it is in those areas that are a little bit easier to teach using technology. There's going to be a rapid expansion of people being able to do things that are normally done in laboratories, and there's going to be new modalities emerge. For example, we at at Grand Canyon University have 23,000 students growing to 40 on our traditional campus. 18 and 19-year-old students, 90,000 students that are attending online, that will grow to 150,000 students. But there's a new model emerging that'll be a hybrid of those two things. And it'll be people who have graduated in the last 10 years that are underemployed. They're going to want to be re-employed in natural science areas, in engineering areas, in computer science, in cybersecurity. And those programs are going to require a hybrid of the two models. Uh, They will do a lot of the didactic work in an online model, but they'll do a lot of the lab work in person in a laboratory. And there'll be short, intense 
very rigorous programs that can take people who maybe right now they have college degrees, but they're working in retail and, for example, move them into a nursing career or move them into a cybersecurity career. Right now, we're going to need a million additional nurses just in the next five years. There are also 300,000 jobs available that pay on average $92,000 in cybersecurity. I'm not against liberal arts education because we have a lot of liberal arts programs and we're working ways for people to move into careers through those. But there's a lot of people that have degrees that they've earned in the last 10 years that they can't make work. And so they're looking for a new model. They don't want to go back to class like they did when they were 18 years old. They can't go totally online either. And so this new re-career model is something that we're working very hard on. That's really, really interesting and something I care a lot about on a personal level. You mentioned at the at the beginning of this, the idea of these very few elite schools that was kind of the, let's say, the old way of thinking about it. And now there's this recognition of, of the fact that a different model is necessary. I think that there is some parallel there with healthcare, specifically classically it's been i feel like i have some liberty to say this because i'm I'm an md but like there's this hierarchy where mds had this very vaunted kind of special position at the top of this hierarchy when we know that that's just not the case and and the fact is a lot of healthcare is done by allied health professions and and it speaks to kind of the the fact that that's where a lot of the job growth is what are your thoughts on that absolutely i think that's a very good parallel not only in terms of you know we we think a core competency of ours needs to be where's the economy going, where the jobs are going to be, create programs that can help people get those jobs. Do it in a way that is very time efficient, that builds a lot of excellence into the programming, but also is affordable. We need to increasingly make education affordable to all socioeconomic classes of Americans. At GCU, our campus has grown from 900 students to 23,000 students. It's on the way to 40,000. We haven't raised tuition in 12 years. The average student on our campus pays less than they would pay at a state university. Our students graduate with less debt than the average state university student. So we are emerging as an academic institution. Our reputation is growing because of our ability to create very practical methodologies for people to engage with us and and to do it in a way that doesn't strap them with ridiculous amounts of debt. You know, one other thing that I've always been curious about is when a student, let's say, graduates from GCU, that student gets a certain type of education, a certain quality of education. And then they go into the workplace and you may not have a lot of control over that workplace culture, environment, and it might be very different from the nurturing environment they experienced at GCU. How do you prepare students when they're going to be leaving and may not get the same sort of culture that they've you know, grown to get used to? Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good question and it's a very interesting challenge, but really an important one. We have 15 advisory boards and we have 500, over 500 organizations and companies represented on those advisory boards. Engineering, technology, education, healthcare, counseling. And the reason we do that is one, we want a lot of input. How is the workplace changing? What skill sets are necessary? What do students need to know in today's nursing world, today's education world, today's technology world? The other reason we do that is because we want students involved in internships across the board, no later than their sophomore year, so that they get into a workplace and they start getting a feel for what's necessary to be successful in a workplace. 
internships, actual experiences in companies, in schools, hospitals are critical as part of a person's education. And the more that we can do that, the more we can partner with these organizations that we are working with and get the student best prepared for the workplace. When we had winter graduation this year, afterwards, I was talking to a lot of families and it was amazing how many, when I would say, what's next? They would say, well, I got an internship at this company and they hired me before I graduated and I'm on my way. Or I did my clinical experience at this hospital. They've hired me. I'm on my way. Or I did my student teaching at this school. And so seeing this thing as a shared responsibility, I even go as far to say as eventually we need to build into the whole accreditation process what the end user of our students is saying about our graduates. And so, you know, what are the technology firms saying about our IT graduates? What are the businesses saying about our business graduates? What are the schools saying about our education graduates? It's obviously our goal to be number one when when people in the Southwest are looking for students. And the best way for us to do that is to keep building those advice boards, keep building those internships so that we can get people into the workplace as soon as possible. Do you see a lot of students, you mentioned the idea of folks wanting to level up or, or folks that are underemployed. Do you see folks coming back? Like, let's say you graduate from Grand Canyon University, you go into career A, and then three, four, five years later, you decide you want to make a switch. Do you see a lot of folks coming back to GCU to kind of level up again once they've already gone through one educational experience with you? Yes, but it has to be a new model. You know, we learned a long time ago, and we're the first to do it at Phoenix, that you don't educate a 40-year-old the same way you educate an 18-year-old. 18-year-olds are going through not an educa- just an educational experience, but they're going through a socialization experience. 40-year-olds don't need to worry about that. They're socializing their own children. These three career people, and we're, we're already way down the road with nurses, nurse practitioners, cybersecurity experts, we're looking for people that have bachelor's degrees who want to relocate to Phoenix and be involved in a program where, because they already have a bachelor's degree, they have very little gen ed to do maybe some that is specific to the program they're going into, maybe specific science courses or math, for example. But they get right into very quickly a very rigorous experience that in nursing, it's 16 months. So we have communications majors and psychology majors and students coming back. They're willing to move and relocate to do this, but they want a very intense, very rigorous, very hands-on experience. Combined didactic material learned online, and lab work done in a laboratory that can get them immediately into a growing profession where there are very good paying jobs and the prospect of a long-term career. We actually have right now 25 partnerships where we're helping other universities doing that. Marquette, Loyola of Chicago, Northeastern are some of the schools that we have partnerships with. We actually build a laboratory about an hour away from their their current location. And we look for baccalaureate prepared students who are underemployed that want to re-career. Right now, the big focus is on nursing, nurse practitioners, occupational therapists. But as we do this in even bigger way in Phoenix, we'll be looking to do it with cybersecurity specialists, with software engineers, I'm hoping mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, et cetera. We've got to do a better job on the front end so students understand from a career perspective what they should be studying when they're going through college the first time. But right now, we've got a whole group of people that need to be 
in a situation where they can get into a more long-term productive career. And that's why that new model is very important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the areas you flagged, I think, are, are obviously areas where there's a lot of employment opportunity at a time when the country, the U.S., is going through tremendous unemployment. So that makes a lot of sense. Maybe one point I'd like to close on then is what advice do you have for folks that are coming out, specifically, in the, let's say, the health sciences, where they're starting their careers? What is one thing you would let them know or share with them as they try to kind of navigate their, their early days in their, in their clinical life? Well, you know, regardless of what organization that you go into, in my opinion, you, you typically get hired initially based upon your credentials. Where did you go to school? What degree did you earn? How did you do in school? What kind of references do you have? Or if you've had some work experience, what have, how have you done in your employment? But then you get, you move forward and you advance based upon not just what you can individually do for the company, but how much of a team player you are. How well do you collaborate? How well do you work with other people? How well do you take advice? Are you able to take criticism productively? I tell our students from my coaching background all the time, there's two things you can control every single day. One of them is is how hard you work. And the second one is how good a teammate are you? I know in our organization, and we employ 14,000 people now with full-time, part-time, adjuncts, student workers, et cetera, is we look to promote and move people up. We're always looking for people that are easy to work with, that understand where the university is trying to go and can help us get there because that's going to help them move their careers along. As much as those technical skills are important, and obviously they are, those softer skills, how well do I communicate? How well do I collaborate? How much of a team player am I? How well do I understand the organization's overall goals and contribute to them? Those things are equally as important in terms of moving people along in their careers. I think that's a really wonderful note to end on the idea of the importance of soft skills and and communication skills in particular. So I'd say thank you so much for sharing that with us, Brian. I mean, it sounds like you've done that your whole life, you know, starting with coaching and and to your final point on, on communication skills in the workplace. So I really, really appreciate your advice. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Appreciate it very much. Well, I'm Rish Desai, and thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.